Good morning everyone. I trust you are all doing well as we begin to resume some aspects of normal living. Personally, I found it a real blessing in the last week or so to be able to uh, meet with people I haven't seen in a while and really enjoy uh, the relationships I have in my life fully. This morning we continue our summer series in which we've been looking at vertical love and horizontal love. In recent weeks we've examined the numerous ways in which God has demonstrated his love for us. Right at the beginning of the series, Mark had looked at initiating love, whereby God has chosen us and adopted us for his purposes. Thereafter, TJ had looked at God's redeeming love, which is most vividly demonstrated by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And last week, Mark had looked at how God has poured out his love for us, and he really emphasised that the love of God is an experience in which we should enjoy and delight. This week, we move into a different aspect to the series. This week, uh, we're going to look at how we have demonstrated our love for God. And indeed, that's what we'll be looking at over the next three weeks. So today, we're going to focus on repentant love. And to help us unpack this topic, we're going to be reading from 1 John, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. And we'll be going into chapter 2 and looking at verses 1 to 2. So I'll just give you a wee moment just to find that on your app or, or your Bible and then we'll read through it together. So starting in verse 5 it says, Now this is a message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we, have fellowship, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we are lying and not practising the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for those of the whole world. God bless the reading of his word. So the, the original op. Uh, audience for this epistle was thought to be believers from different churches who were spread throughout Asia, who had become influenced by false teachings. The teachings were grounded in Gnosticism, and it included the belief that salvation was not acquired through faith in Christ, but by special knowledge. The nature of sin was also distorted and misrepresented by these teachings. This issue had caused disunity and discord within the church, and many believers had become disheartened. So the letter from the Apostle John was sent to encourage the Christian community to, to hold fast to what they had been taught and to reject these false teachings. So if we get straight into the passage, let, let's start in verse 5. It says, Now this is a message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. 
So the verse begins with the apostle's statement to the reader that the message he possesses comes directly from the Lord. That underlies that what falls, the message that follows is authoritative and that we should receive this gladly into our hearts. The message itself begins with a proclamation that God is light. But what does the apostle exactly mean by that term? The dictionary defines light as a natural agent that stimulates sight and makes things visible. So we can understand light as a naturally occurring phenomenon that puts darkness to death and brings vision to life. The concept of light itself appears throughout uh, the Bible. Some of the references describe the physical entity we, we commonly call light. For instance, we learn in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 that God created the light to distinguish the day from the night. However, the apostle ascribes an entirely different meaning to the concept of light in the verse. He declares that God himself is light. And this is a description of God that we find scattered throughout the whole Bible. In Psalm 27 verse 1 it states, The Lord is my light and my salvation. In Psalm 119 verse 105 it states, God's word is light. And in the book of John, chapter 8, verse 12, it says that Jesus is the light of the world. So all these various references to light highlight two important points. The first one being that God created the physical entity referred to as light. But also, God is the essence of light. So what do we mean by that? What, what is the God being the essence of light? Well, simply it refers to his perfect nature. It conveys to us that God is a natural self-active agent and he's characterised by undefiled purity, wisdom, understanding, holiness and love. So when we read the term God is light, we can understand it to mean that God is pure, God is wise, God is holy and God is love. God lacks any defects or imperfections. As is stated in the verse, there is no darkness in him. God is therefore excellent in all his ways. He is the light who pierces the darkness of the world, restoring vision and new life to all who seek fellowship with him by putting to death spiritual blindness. In the next verse, the apostle says, If we say we have no fellowship, we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we are lying and not practising the truth. So in the verse, the apostle highlights that there may be people who claim communion with God, but nevertheless continue to lead impure lives that are characterised by ignorance and rebellion. He refers to such people as liars and, there is, and states that there is no truth within their profession and the practice of their faith. To use a colloquial term, these are people that are all froth and no coffee. Such individuals may possess a chameleon-type faith, which may look and sound Christian, but ultimately lacks true substance. So in the verse, the apostle urges us to really dig deep into the marrow of our convictions and to consider whether there's substance in our claims to be relational with God. Do we truly know him? Are we sincere, faithful, obedient and honest in our walk with God? Do we delight in his word? Or do we delight in the world and instead walk in darkness? Are we deceiving ourselves and other people? It's important to realise that the dark and the light have no affinity 
are natural adversaries. They cannot occupy the same place at the same time. Therefore, if we walk in darkness, we cannot experience the light. And if we cannot experience the light, we cannot practice truth. And if we cannot practice the truth, then we cannot have fellowship with the Father. And if we cannot have fellowship with the Father, we have no light and we're blinded to the sin and impurity in our lives. We will walk in darkness. So it's critical that we remain in God's light and the benefits of this are unpacked by the Apostle in the next verse, where he says, But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So the verse highlights that Jesus himself is also the essence of light. Like the Father, he is defined by his purity, his wisdom, his holiness and his love. He is the light of the world who is without fault and without blemish. As believers, it's expected that we seek to emulate the light of Christ in our own lives. Indeed, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, Jesus tells us that we too are the light of the world and should shine before others in glory to the Father. Here's what he says. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So here we learn that we too also possess the light of God, and we should demonstrate it in such a manner that the Father is glorified within the world. But let me be clear, the scriptures are not suggesting that we share in God's purity or his perfection. We are not the source of the light, we are merely its benefactors. A helpful analogy involves the sun and the moon. As we know, the moon provides light for the earth, just as the sun does. However, the source of the moonlight comes from the sun. The moon can only reflect the light of the sun. It cannot generate it. In the same way, Jesus is the source of light in all of the world, and we merely reflect his light into the darkness of the world. We are not the source of the light. We are not perfect. He is. As a church, we are all possessors and vessels of God's light. This is the foundation of our fellowship with the Father and indeed each other. Without fellowship with God, there, can, there cannot be any authentic Christian fellowship. Therefore, we must strive to walk in the light of God, as the strength of our church is dependent on our conformity to God's Spirit and His commands. But please take heart, none of us can fully achieve this standard. We are all prone to walk in the dark, and we're all prone to labour early through, daily through our weakness in the flesh. Therefore, the Apostle gives us an assurance that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. However, if you study the verse, you'll notice that the Apostle uses the word cleanses in the present tense. This indicates that he's not referring to our eternal justification received through the blood of Christ, but rather our ongoing sanctification. The Apostle confirms here that Christ is cleaning us daily from our sin as we conform to his spirit and receive his grace. 
as believers, this is the privilege we enjoy as we walk in fellowship with him and each other. If you turn to me to verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the, the apostle begins the verse with a presupposition that even though we enjoy communion with God, will nevertheless repeatedly fall short in a standard. He knows that we are prone to sin, and to deny this is a form of gross self-deception. <clears throat> Within the verse, he points out two significant consequences for denying our sin. The first one is that the truth is not in us. The verse warns us not to deny or excuse the sin in our lives, lest we fool ourselves, become spiritually blind and adrift from God. So the question is then, why might we deny the sin in our lives? Why might we be tempted to ignore the errors in our life, even when they're obvious to us? You know, sin's a difficult concept to pin down. Within the Old Testament scriptures, it's largely associated with transgressions of the law instituted by God as a standard of his righteousness. So the law provided an objective guide for people to live by, and any violation of the law was considered sinful. When we look at the New Testament, it considered sin in a somewhat more subjective manner. It is viewed as a condition of the heart. Sin is found in the heart. All sinful behaviour stems from our inner motivations, our attitudes. Put simply, simple thought, sinful thoughts lead to sinful actions. It is a corrupt heart that offends God and triggers malevolence in the world. Indeed, this is made clear by Jesus when he teaches that our inner motivations and not our outward conformity to rules and regulations is what defines our righteousness. Here is what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 22, and verses 27 to 28. He says, you have, heard, you have heard that it was said to your ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Verse 27, he says, You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sin is found in our heart. In the modern world, the concept of sin is unpopular and rejected. For many people, the notion of being a sinner is limited to the religiously minded and has no bearing in their lives. The term itself is often associated with evil and immorality, and no one wishes to view themselves in such a light. And as a consequence, people are apt to see sin in the world but really in themselves. This is a point highlighted by C.S. Lewis. In his book, Mere Christianity, he states that the modern world's sense of morality focuses almost exclusively in achieving fairness and harmony between individuals. 
This observational voice is reflected in the current moral framework underpinning our society, which seeks to address equality and issues of social justice for marginalised groups. The need to recognise and support the human rights of minority groups is the primary moral imperative of our age, and it's exposed daily by the political classes and mass media. Don't get me wrong, the political and the cultural focus on human rights is for good reason. The United Nations Declaration on Human Rights is the founding document and was published in 1948 in response to the atrocities which occurred during World War II. The document sets out the need for universal human rights to avoid a repeat of the horrors which took place during the war. This document's gone to have a massive influence in the moral outlook of the world. If you read the preamble of the UN Charter, we find the Christian influence at its heart. It states the following, where is recognition of the inherent dignity and of equal and inalienable rights for all members of the human family as the foundation of freedom, justice and peace in the world? The biblical understanding that we're all born with equal digni dignity, worth and value is a cornerstone of the UN Charter. Furthermore, many of the rights that are outlined in the Charter, which set out to prevent discrimination, torture and unfair treatment, align with the Christian ideal, exemplified by Christ in the Gospels, that we should have love, care and compassion for those facing persecution, illness, disability and poverty. Therefore, concern for human rights and the dignity of other people is one way that we can show love for people and demonstrate our devotion to God. However, the idea and the belief that each individual has inherent dignity and deserves fair treatment is just one aspect of morality and negates other considerations that are equally important. C.S. Lewis makes a further point that morality not only involves achieving harmony and unity between individuals, but also involves bringing harmony and unity to our soul. But this is less emphasised in our culture. So the, a basis for moral living must not exclusively focus on helping others. It must also include repentance of our sin. This is because the origins of evil are first found in the human heart. The seeds of sin are sown in our souls before taking root in the world. Therefore, to walk in truth, we must undertake an honest examination of our heart. What beliefs, attitudes, motivations and desires do you have that bring disunity to your soul and potentially malevolence to the world? We must identify our sin and wage war on it. It's not enough to help others or to seek to challenge the evil we find in the world if we first don't challenge the evil we find in ourselves. When we read the Bible, we find many accounts of Jesus helping the poor, the sick and the vulnerable. This is the Jesus of the Gospels that the world largely embraces and accepts as an example of moral living. However, and this is key, it's critical we understand that Christ did not come to help the poor the sick and the disadvantaged people of the world. He did this, of course. This was one aspect of his love, but this was not his mission. We know this because we also find in the Gospels that he spends time with those with power 
means money and influence. This is reflected in Mark chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, and it says, <clears throat> While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes, who were Pharisees, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. These are people who were considered beyond the pale in the time of Jesus, and he was vilified for his association with them. Nevertheless, he gave of himself regardless as an act of love. This makes clear a profound reality. God's love extends to each and every one of us. Jesus did not view the world as divided between rich and poor, healthy and sick, powerful and powerless, deserving and undeserving. The divide for Jesus was between the proud and the repentant. He holds a redeeming love for each and every one of us, and it was his deepest desire that all people would look into their hearts, repent and turn away from their sin. This was his mission and that was his primary concern. He wants us to bring balance and unity to our heart and our soul. Our love for Jesus should therefore be demonstrated by leading a life of continued repentance, humiliation and mortification for sin. We show our love for God when we acknowledge the sin in our lives and we reach out with a humility and dependence on him, a dependence on his grace. To deny our sin is not only to deceive ourselves, but it's to reject the truth revealed in Christ Jesus. And as a consequence, we walk in spiritual and moral blindness. The second consequence of denying our sin given by the apostle is, is that we make God a liar. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, we find that God makes a covenant with Noah. It says, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward, and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. The verse illustrates to us that if we deny our sin, we oppose God's testimony of the presence and the continuation of sin in the world. He makes it clear that the inclination of the human heart is evil. Therefore, to deny our sin is to debase God and reject his truth. The verse also highlights, however, that despite our sin, God does no desire to punish us or condemn us. He wants to forgive us. Therefore, in the scriptures, to be found that all through the ages, God has provided a way for us to atone for our sin by way of an efficacious sacrifice. This culminates in the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, who died as a permanent offering for our sin. God has declared his righteousness and his justification for all sinners who have faith in Christ. However, despite Christ paying the penalty for our sin for all time, 
It is God's desire that we continually confess our sins and impute by faith our offences onto the blood of Christ. For this act of faith and love, the Father promises to cleanse us from all unrighteousness through the process of sanctification. We see this promise given when Jesus speaks to Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 26, verse 15 through 18. It says, I asked who you are, Lord, and the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus makes it clear by, by turning away from our sin, we receive forgiveness and we're sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, each of us should possess a, a dedication and intentional desire to be free from sin. We must pray and petition to God that he would realign our hearts and purge us from the darkness in our hearts and our failings so that we're made holy and useful for his purposes. It is through this desire that we show our love for God and he responds in love by restoring our day-to-day -day relationship with him. If we get to chapter 2 and we look at verse 1, it says, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So these two verses conclude the previous chapter in which the apostle has brought to light the reality of sin in our lives. And it's from this perspective that he gives a word of dissuasion, but also a word of encouragement. So his word of dissuasion is, is that he would leave no room for sin in our lives. He says, my little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. So in the previous chapter, the apostle makes it clear that God is faithful and he's just to forgive our sins. So here the apostles caution us, cautions against us taking advantage of that understanding. He's making it clear that we're not to willfully engage in sinful behaviour under the insurance that, that God will forgive us should we confess our sin to him. Instead, he emphasises that his message of God's grace should act as a deterrent. He then goes on to give a word of encouragement. And that, that, that can be understood as he provides a remedy for our sin. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Let me make it clear, folk, that the human species is, is beautiful and it's capable of great compassion and altruism. We've got a capacity for love and great sacrifice and service to others. But as I've already mentioned, we're not only beautiful, we're also broken. 
It only requires a casual glance at the news or even to look out your living room window to see this fact and all its ugliness. The brokenness of our hearts has led to a broken and divided world. We are all guilty and no one is exempt. The apostle and his wisdom therefore knows that despite our efforts to reign in our sin, it will persist. So we therefore we need a remedy for our trans transgressions in the world. How is this achieved? In his book, The Story of Reality, Gregory Kuhl writes the following concerning the coming of Christ into the world. He says, I would like to say a bit more about what was involved when God came down. How did this happen? It could only happen if something unimaginable, yet wonderful, took place. God got small. Think for a moment of how you would speak to a frightened child. You would crouch down. You would get low. You would stoop to his level to gently calm him and draw him to yourself. It's a natural thing to do. That is what precisely God has done to reach out to a frightened, lost humanity. God crouched down. He came down. He got low. This great truth is reflected by Paul when he writes to the church in Philippi. He says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. God got small for his folks. He laid aside his divinity and he swapped para paradise for the deepest pit on our behalf. He crouched down to our level and he drew us close to him so that he could guide us home. The antidote to our sin is the advocacy of Christ Jesus who intercedes on our behalf. As we are broken, he can say nothing good of us. However, he's secured our acquittal by enduring the full penalty of our sin on the cross. It is his righteousness in contrast to our sin that settles our debt and appeases God. This is the redemptive love of God poured out for us and it is by faith in him that we are justified and made righteous in God's eyes. It's a love like no other and it's a love that we as believers should reciprocate by being intentional to root out the sin in our own hearts. I would say to anyone who's yet to put their faith in Christ, allow him to draw close to you. Allow him to enter your heart. He's here and he's waiting for you to accept his offer of love, hope and forgiveness. And you can accept his love at this very moment. You can contact us here at DBC and one of our prayer team would be blessed to spend time with you and praying for you. And if you feel led to do that, you can click on the raised hand icon at the side of the screen and someone will speak to you. So just before we close folks, based on all we've, we've talked about today, I'm going to leave you with two points for application in your life this week. If we read Psalm 19 verse 12 through 13, David says the following, Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. 
Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Psalmist was really pointing us to, to refrain from willfully sinning and to ask God to reveal to us our blind spots, our hidden faults. So I would encourage you this week to spend time in prayer, asking that God, confessing the sin in your life and asking that God would purge you from that. And he would also reveal any hidden faults that you may harbour in your heart. Reach out to him in prayer. Confess your sin. Turn away from it. The second point relates to the book of James, chapter 5, verse 16. It says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful and it is in its effect. What, what I feel James prompt, prompting us here to do is that if we feel led, maybe it'd be useful to confess your sin to a trusted Christian confidant and receive prayer. That might give you the added assurance of forgiveness, but also might give you added encouragement to tackle the sin in your life. So it's definitely an option that's open to us as well. Let me finish with prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your love, Father. We give thanks that you have redeemed us and that, Father, you continually pour out your love for us, Father, and that you desire us to become holy, Father, and pure in your likeness. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would minister into our hearts this week, that you would reveal to us the sin in our lives, that you would uh, make the blind spots visible to us, Father, and that, Father, we would demonstrate our love to you by seeking forgiveness, that we would repent, and that through this, Father, we would be healed by your grace and by the work of your spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name.